I was thinking, even as I was talking there with the kids, I was thinking a little bit about the, the things that parents are grateful for. The things that parents are grateful Now I'm, I'm, uh, our, our four kids are, are all adults and out on their own. And we even have a few grandkids scattered here and there. And so there, there's much to be grateful for. Things that parents are grateful for about their kids, like that our four kids are all out of the house, right? And on their own. And, and it's just Julie and I, well, and the cat. We, we could be thankful that they're, 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 all, they're all healthy. The, kid, the kids, the grandkids are all healthy. They're all launched into various jobs or careers, and they've, uh, they've all been through college and got their various training and skills that they needed. And What is it that parents are grateful for, thankful for, concerning their children? Maybe as they're growing up, it's just that they do well in school and stay out of trouble. <clears throat> is, that, is that really the thing to be thankful for? Seems pretty good. Do well in school. Do well in school and they can maybe get into a good college and they can maybe get into a particular career path that you're really ambitious for them in. Well, maybe that's the right thing for them. Maybe it's not. Um, stay out of trouble. That seems like a good thing, except sometimes maybe they need to not go along with something that's going on. Sometimes there's a reason, perhaps, even to be in trouble. I don't know, it can get kind of complicated, but what are we really thankful for? Bottom line. I love the line. In fact, actually, it, it kind of came up. I was, I was conversing with um, one of your parents. I won't say who. But I was conversing with one of your parents in between the services, and, and uh, they said something that they were really thankful for. That reminded me of John the Apostle. And John the Apostle, in his third letter, I think, says it better than I could. He says, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children succeeding in life. To hear of my children staying out of trouble. Oh, in the Roman world, maybe that's not the thing. No, he says, I have no greater joy than this. To hear of my children walking in the truth. Yeah. And we know as parents... After some time, we know what it's like. We know that joy when our kids are walking in the truth. And we know the hurt. We know the ache. We know the sorrow that it brings when they have left the truth. They've forsaken what is true and good, and they've turned in another direction. And we know the heartbreak that that brings in their life. And thus for us as well. I was thinking of parents as I thought of the passage just before us today. And asking the question then, as, as Paul in this passage gives thanks, it makes me, it, it caused me to wonder, what is, what would God, well, God doesn't really give thanks, he's God. And yet, what makes God glad? Maybe that's another way to ask the question. 
What is it among his children that makes God glad? What is it among his church that makes God glad, that causes God to rejoice? Well, in the passages before us, we're going to see Paul's thankfulness. It's these, these opening verses, this opening sentence, actually. There's the opening two verses of, of standard greeting, and then there's a one sentence, hey, how you doing? It's almost flyover passage before we get into the real meat, the real deep theology that Colossians 1 and 2 contain concerning the person of Christ. But before we get there, we have this one sentence. And I know it's broken into a few sentences in, 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 our, in a lot of our Bible translations now. But verses 3 to 8 form one sentence originally, and it's kind of just, it could be seem like niceties. But it is the Word of God. And Paul has already abbreviated things that he says in this letter from the way that he says them in the letter to the Ephesians. So I don't think there's extra words here. Was it about this opening line, this opening sentence of Paul's gratefulness for what in this church that we can learn from? There's a thankfulness here that they have come to faith in Christ and, and that they are growing in him. There's a, the, the root or the cause, the, the, the fork and the fertilizer of that spiritual growth is identified and focused on. As well as there's a landscaper identified. There's, a, there, there's the, the reality that the faith and growth are fostered by sacrificial and faithful servants. Now, Paul's affirmation of the church, this is what I see in the church, this is what I'm thankful for. His affirmation is also aspirational. He's giving thanks for that which he wants to continue and to grow still more and more. So there's something for us to learn. What Paul rejoices in here is what we want to rejoice in together here. These are the things we want in this family. These are the things we want to see among us as well. But while these, while these affirmations, this faith in Christ, this growth, this spiritual fruit, there's a danger. There's a danger that... that distractions around them or departures from the gospel, things from their background baggage, the Jewish or Greek that we talked about before, these things could hinder, these things could get in the way, these things could prevent the kind of fruit that should be produced within these lives among this church. And so, these opening lines do not only tell us something about the church of Colossae, but they tell us something about Paul, certainly, and what he's grateful for, but it also points to goals in ministry and for our own maturity. What kind of fruit do we want to see together as a church? And what fosters that? What nurtures that? What fork and fertilizer are needed in order to bring that fruit to harvest? I want to read verses 3 through 8 of Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. As we stand in worship, we, we, we stand before God's Word. 
And I'll read verses 3 to 8 of Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Father, we pray that the things that Paul is grateful for here, the things that he gives thanks for here, that these would be the things that are true and increasing here in your church as well. Father, we pray that we would open our ears and eyes. Lord, we'd open our hearts to your word and bend our will toward it, that you might do your work in us as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, first of all, he gives thanks. In, in verses 3 and 4, he gives thanks for those in this church. He gives thanks to the saints who are in Colossae. He gives thanks for them for two things. He gives thanks to them for their trust in Christ Jesus, first of all. That they are believing in, that they have faith in, that they trust Jesus, the Messiah, the human, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, they trust him that their faith is in him. Your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. A shared faith in Christ has also created a new community at Colossae. And the fact that they have love for the saints isn't quite what he says. He says they have love for all the saints. And this dips back into some of the background that we talked about our last week together, some of the background of Colossae. How there, this was a Greco-Roman city, somewhat in decline, with uh, people of various backgrounds, a little bit of Greek background, Roman background, the Phrygian, Asian background of that area. But also there were among them some Jewish transplants. And the Jewish subculture in this sort of mixed, little more cosmopolitan culture, there's a Jewish subculture that is, in many ways, isolated from the culture at large. There's a distinction between them. That the, the Greco-Roman, the Greek-Roman society thinks those Jewish people are kind of strange and they're different. And they're a strange and different minority which tells you that they are typically mocked, they are despised, they are looked down on, they are at the fringe rather than a shared common place in the center of society. That Jewish subculture also tends to somewhat protectively for themselves, they isolate themselves from the culture at large. 
They do that because, well, we believe in the one true God, and God forbids us from idols. God forbids us from from participating in food sacrificed to idols. That takes us out of most of the of the of the big civic city. Um, celebrations and festivities. It keeps us away from the, the, the shared meals that would part, happen in an idol temple or with food that came from an idol temple. In fact, the, the rest of the city eats the kind of foods that God has told us we cannot eat. Those are unclean. So all of those legal restrictions from the law of Moses cause a separation between us. They are a distinct people within a larger population. They are isolated from and somewhat looked down on, and they isolate themselves and within and among themselves consider themselves the righteous few among the pagan masses. Okay? And yet, out of that divided context, the gospel has created, has given birth to a church. There is a body of believers that has grown up. Those who have have believed the, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and their hope is in Him and it is a shared hope together and as is described in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 that this has created a new oneness together. This has created out of the two, both Jew and non-Jew, one new humanity. They have a new togetherness in the church out of a divided past experience. And Paul captures something of that that you would see it clearly if you were visiting the first century that we have to unpack a little bit more that they one of the things he rejoices for them in is their love for all the saints. They do not love just those who are like them. They don't love those other saints from their part of town, from their shared background and experience, but they have a love for all the saints. One of the ways that was seen is among the, uh, among the churches of the Gentile world, there was, this, there was this great effort in a receiving of an offering that would be taken back to Jerusalem for the poor among the Christians in Jerusalem because when they believed in Jesus, they were set out from their own families, from their own jobs, from their own communities. They were isolated. They were excommunicated. And these non-Jewish People from all around the world gathered up resources to send to them. These people who had previously looked down on them. So those that had looked down on them, holier than thou, those who had mocked and despised, now God has brought these two together and there is a love in his church that transcends the normal human boundaries and differences. That's a remarkable thing. It's, it's actually amazing what God has done in creating this new family in Christ of a sharing among believers, of a giving of oneself for others, of a willingness to sacrifice for the benefit of somebody else who I don't necessarily share a lot in common with. I was thinking about that in, in, our, in our small group. 
And I was thinking about that just a few minutes ago concerning our small group. I should say it that way, how, how that um, our, our, our care, our love for one another has deepened in the midst of sharing the stuff of life together and the troubles that occur in life together and having a much better appreciation for and even I found myself being all the more thankful for the faith that continues the faith that is growing in the lives of people that I've gotten to know as I've been aware of the difficulty and the hardships and the tough stuff of life and yet they believe that binding us together in a group because we need to be gathered together. We need life-on-life -life relation and connection together. And when we do that, we end up getting joined in life and sharing the stuff of life and being aware of troubles and struggles. And that gave me further insights into, and yet they believe. God has got a hold of them. What else can they do? And yet they continue in belief. He gives thanks for their trust in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. There is a uniting together in the church that is different from what we see in the culture around us today. The, 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 our moment in American history and in the, in the culture dynamic that's happening, we, we are in what you would consider, or we are entering in the midst of what, what you can consider a post-Christian era. That, that the, the West and the United States was greatly affected by the Reformation in Western Europe. And then we had the first and second great awakenings here in the U.S. And we shared a commonality from an awareness of an accountability to God. And there was a shared faith in God across the culture. I do not mean to say we were thus a Christian nation or that every American was a believer or follower of Jesus. But the culture at large was greatly influenced by that. But that has been winding down. We have been running out. And I think that era has, has really officially closed, and we are in a post-Christian era. And yet, we are a population of people who are made in the image of God, but now apart from the gospel as a culture. And yet, we still, as a people made in the image of God, we have this awareness of right and wrong. We have a, an awareness of fairness, of equality, or rebranded as equity, let's say. And yet, that pursued as a movement with a human focus apart from God and his gospel ends up not being a movement that ends up creating this shared equality of opportunity and privilege and even outcomes, but rather, it ends up, instead of uniting people together, it actually divides further. There are movements in our culture today that are, that are increasing division rather than removing and pulling down the things that divide various people with various social, economic, cultural, ethnic differences. There's a pulling of people apart. There's a dividing of people, and the dividing of people ends up in just an example, the, 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 um, the equity movement. It ends up not creating equity even among the people of the movement, but advantage to a privileged few. 
And everybody else is kind of left where they were, except angrier than they were before at others around them. What the cross of Jesus has done, what the gospel of Jesus has done, has created a level ground. A level ground in awareness of our shared accountability to God. An awareness of our guilt before him and an awareness together of the shared same provision that God has given equally to each and any of us, which is Jesus for us in our place. There's a, there's a whole equality that played out in the early church no matter what the station of life within the broader culture somebody held. That's what it was to be a member of the household of God. That was a whole new standing that we were given, that we were given this together. And this new standing creates a spiritual family, no matter how you're isolated even from your own family. Then or now, maybe you're the only believer within your extended family. And yet you have a whole new family. You have brothers and sisters. You have aunts and uncles. You have those who will come along beside you and help you and encourage you. You have those that you can look to and follow. You have those that you can put your arm around and lead them along as you're walking and following the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that we, we separate from or we withdraw and isolate from our natural families. But you have a much larger family, and you have a spiritual family. In fact, a family that has unlimited capacity to adopt others in. There's room. There's room in this house. He gives thanks that the mindset of these believers is no longer merely about their own. But they have a trust in Christ, and that trust in Christ has opened up a love for all the saints. And Paul's giving thanks for them in his prayer. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, or in our prayers for you. The prayers are the context in which he is given thanks, which Paul in his prayer is thinking of others. Even as what's happening in that church, that tells us there's perhaps a link between the leaders and the church as a whole then. That Paul in his mind now, Paul's under house arrest. Paul is in confinement. Paul is facing a hearing before the emperor as to whether he's going to be executed or not. Paul's got a lot going on. And yet, in his prayers, who is he praying for? We're giving thanks in our prayers for you. I was sitting in the midst of the Lord's table. And one of the things I was praying for in the midst of the distribution as we pass out the elements, I was thinking of and giving thanks for the shared faith that is in this room. Now, I did that not because I'm, I'm miles ahead of you spiritually. I did that because I heard the message the first hour, and it did something to me. So, so easily our prayers are about ourselves and for ourselves. Are they not? Even coming before the table, Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness of my guilt. And yet wrapped up in that is, God, I thank you that these around me share this forgiveness, that these around me share this faith in Christ. 
Uh, uh, somebody mentioned to me after the, after the first, first service how, how easy it is for them to, to focus in their prayers. So much of their prayer is about their own circumstances and their own need. And it was good to be reminded that here's Paul in the midst of his imprisonment and he's thinking of praying for and giving thanks for somebody 100 miles away. No, more than that, 1,000 miles away. In fact, a church that he has not actually ever visited. Somebody else planted this church. We'll get to him in a moment. But, but she, was, she was encouraged by that to get, to, to get out of her own circumstances to pray more for others. I said, I said, don't feel bad about it. Our own situations, our own needs, our own circumstances, they're the ones that shout the loudest, right? They're the ones that are closest to us. Those are the ones that we can't help but hear. We're going to have to intentionally think about what are the other needs around me that I need to pray for as well? Who else around me do I need to be praying for besides my own needs? I'm going to have to intentionally put myself out toward the needs of others. Because my own needs will easily drown them out. They're the closest to my ears. Giving thanks for others in our praying. You know what that does for us? It helps us to get our eyes off of ourselves. Because I am, in the fall, I am bent inward. I have this tendency toward myself. That's the essence of the fall. What do I want for me? And I can even do that spiritually in prayer. And yet the gospel calls me to be bent outward toward others. To go from a lens like this to a lens like that. I forget the convex and concave, and I'm going to mix them up, but you get the picture. The gospel pushes me outward toward others instead. And that includes even how I pray. It changes how I pray. Now, how does this happen? It's based out of what it is that God has done for us. Look at verse 5. Because... As a result of you, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. There's what has freed them. There's what has changed things for them. There's what has set them on a whole new course, a, a whole new way of living, new fruit being born in their lives because God has given them a future. It is set, it is secure, and they've heard about it. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, laid up, secure, reserved. Peter says it this way, an inheritance reserved in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God. So God has an inheritance, a future he's keeping for you. God is keeping you for that future. We have a glorious future. And Paul prays that the, that the Ephesians would know what is the hope of his calling. The assured confidence of God's glorious future. Because when we're quite confident that our future is covered, our future is taken care of. I don't need to worry about what am I going to do for myself concerning the future. When that's settled, when that's done, when that's in God's hands and I'm confident of it, that frees me to give myself away for others. I don't have to gather. I don't have to scramble. I don't have to strive at or what I'm going to build up and hoard and gather for myself. How I'm going to secure my own better future. God's got that. 
so I can give myself away for others. It's better than winning the lottery, really. Way better. Lasts far longer. This hope, because of, this hope is a freeing hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in all the world, bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. There's two things I want to talk about the gospel. First of all, that it, it works. I don't mean it works in a pragmatic sort of a way. The gospel is effectual. The gospel is effective. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And by that, I don't just mean a home in heaven. The gospel is the power of salvation in terms of a changed and a transformed life. You yield yourself to the gospel. It will change you. You soak in this truth, and like water soaking into those fork holes around that tree, you soak in the truth of the gospel, and it will bear fruit of change in your life. That's the promise. That's what it says right here. The gospel bears fruit. The gospel does its work. It accomplishes this. The, The word that God sends forth accomplishes the purpose to which he sends it. This hope which you heard about in the gospel, which came to you as in all the world, is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. We need to soak in the gospel. It will bear its fruit. We need to read God's word. Yes, um, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. How about read your Bible as this is God's story to me, revealing himself. This is God's story about the good news of God who created all of us and me, and yet we are fallen in sin and we serve ourselves, and you see the conflict of it spread across the Old Testament, and yet you see God's redemption. All the way from Genesis 3, he kills an innocent one to provide a covering. And there are sacrifices. There is an innocent animal that is slain to, to, to take on itself the guilt of the one who offers it. And by believing, trusting God's word concerning that, the relationship is restored between human and God. There's a story all the way through fulfilled in Christ himself. That God loved us. That he gave his son for us. And when that story, when that truth, when that reality gets hold of your heart, it changes us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains us. Some versions read instead, the love of Christ compels us. Because it does both of those things. I compared it, for farmers, I compared it to a cattle chute. The love of Christ not only hems us in, but it pushes us forward. And that love of Christ is Christ's love for me. When when I get a hold of how God loves me in Christ, that love of Christ will get a hold of my life. It will change me. Yeah, we need to soak in that truth because that truth is fruit-bearing truth. Not only that, it is true. Did Did you catch the double emphasis of that? 
He says, you heard before, you heard of your inheritance, you heard of God's glorious future, you heard that while we lost a garden in Genesis 3, we will be restored to a garden in Revelation 20. That that is our glorious future. That, that as Daniel the prophet says, the kingdom of God will be given to the saints, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. That is our glorious future. And so, as the love of Christ for us grabs hold of us, it changes us. And this is true. You heard of this hope in the word of truth, the gospel. And go down to the end of verse 6. You heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Sometimes we treat the truth of the gospel lightly. Sometimes we hear and we say, oh, okay. I love the question I get now and again from somebody in the church that asks me, Pastor, what do we believe about so-and-so? And I say, well, I don't know. I know what I believe from what God has said. I'm not sure what you believe. You see, we can't just believe what the church believes when we don't even know what it is that the church together believes or affirms about the truth, we need to dig in and we need to know. Not because it's your obligation, and to quote my friends in the choir, you have no excuse. <laughs> but but we, we need to know this because this is the fork and the fertilizer in the soil. That, that, that as we know God's truth, as we poke around and ask questions of our faith to understand it, there's where it gets hold of us. And there's where it does its work among us. We can trust ourselves to God's truth because it will do its work in us and because it is true. And to the point that we understand it, it'll change us. How you heard and understood or how you heard the, and grasped the grace of God truly. How does that happen? How does that happen that they came to faith and they are growing in love for one another? There is the fruit of the Spirit. The, the gospel is bearing its fruit as it is increasing. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. These things are growing and increasing in this church. How did that happen? Because they heard and understood the grace of God in truth. How did that happen? Somebody took a fork and poked around at the roots. Somebody spread fertilizer that their lives could grow. His name was Epaphras. Look again at verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. A couple of things I could say about Epaphras. He's a fellow servant, not a lone ranger. He's not doing his own thing. He is serving in the midst with others, pursuing the same gospel agenda together with others. He is a fellow servant. He has a love for the church. He has a love for Paul as his mentor. 
He is a faithful servant of Christ. The same thing is echoed again in chapter 4 and verse 12. He serves Christ in his serving of others. He sees this work, investing himself in the lives of others as bigger than their needs. This is how I not merely serve them, this is how I serve Christ. He's a servant of Christ in whatever corner, whatever God has given him to do. He serves by praying. Some of you wonder, well, how could I, what can I do? How can I help? How can I participate? I'm very limited these days into what I can actually do. Epaphras was too at times. He agonized for you, Paul says in chapter 4. He agonizes for you in his prayers. He's a faithful prayer for them. I heard a story this week from one of our small group leaders about how something that happens in their group, something that characterizes their group, we're, we're short of a, a stop, drop, and pray group. We don't have an extended time where we sit around and, and share requests and then we pray for them. We stop, drop, and pray in the midst of what else we're doing when in our conversation something comes up that this is something that we need to talk to God about. And a couple of us together pray, or maybe we stop and get the whole group's attention and we gather and pray. But we stop, drop, drop, and pray along the way. We, bottom line, we're praying for one another. We're caring for one another spiritually. That was a great encouragement to me. It's not a matter of all we can do is pray, but, well, the first thing we can do is pray. And oftentimes in prayer, there'll be other truth you're reminded of, or there'll be something else to do that you're reminded of or led into. But the first thing you can do is pray and see how God directs you from there. Epaphras is also a fellow prisoner of Christ. Paul, when he writes the letter to Philemon, he mentions Epaphras briefly there, and he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. What I get out of that is if you're going to serve, if you're going to invest in the lives of others, there's a price to be paid. At times it will cost you something. I'm not saying you're going to go to jail. I don't know that. That time might come too, but that's probably not the biggest threat right now, but it's going to cost you something. There is time, energy, resources that you could use for yourself that you're going to use instead for the benefit of somebody else. And as you do that, that is your service of worship to Christ. That's what he calls us to. He calls us, really, as we grow in this family that he's created us to be, he calls us to become like Epaphras, to grow in our fruitfulness that we, like Epaphras, are then encouraging and nurturing and digging around and poking and prodding for the, the investment of the word of truth, the gospel of, of salvation, into the lives of others that fruit is produced in their lives as well. We Put it in the bulletin this way. We seek to know and follow Jesus, not individually. No, that's the American way. That's, that's our culture today. But we seek to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. That's what Epaphras demonstrates to us. Paul's got a lot to give be thankful for in this church. But the things that Paul is thankful for in Colossae are the same things that, that, that the pastors and elders here at Brush Prayer, we look out at this church and, and we thank God that we're seeing this. And oh, that it might increase more and more. Oh, that the church would be filled 
with the likeness of Epaphras, which is something of a reflection of the likeness of Jesus. And that's the fruit that the gospel of Jesus will bear in our lives. What Paul wants for them, his affirming them, which is aspirational, it's what he wants for them to continue in, what Paul wants for them is what we want together as a church, for you to know and follow by helping others know and follow. That growth will happen as you are believing, as you are loving others and helping them to know the truth of the gospel and to walk in it also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that, first of all, you have given us your truth. We thank you, Father, that we are able to share it together. We are able to consider it for ourselves. We are able to soak it in and to yield to it. Father, would you do this among us? Deepen, according to the word of your truth, deepen our faith in Jesus. And then, Lord, stretch us outward in our love to all the saints. And as we love one another well, Father, might others around us see that we indeed are your disciples, your followers. We pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.